Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 402. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with my friend Matt Phelan. Matt is co-founder and co-CEO of The Happiness Index that provides real-time employee engagement tech to build stronger workplace cultures. His passion is to understand how people experience happiness. And in Matt's words, his vision is to use data to visualize culture in a similar way to how Google Maps visualizes the world. He just released the delightful book, Freedom to be Happy, The Business Case for Happiness. Previously, Matt co-founded and successfully exited a global data and digital marketing agency. In this conversation with Matt, we dissect the concept of happiness, his experience in writing this book, how business leaders can use data science, insights, and storytelling to embed happiness into the culture, Zappos founder Tony Shea's legacy, and much more. A candid and inspiring chat. You'll find all the show notes on mintodile.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Matt Phelan, my goodness, feeling happy, are you? <laughs> Great to have you on the show, Matt. So Great to be on, Minter. You and I have known each other for a good couple of, I don't know how many years, but they feel like very intense and full years, Matt. And the reason why I wanted to get you on the show was because you published very recently a wonderful book called Freedom to be Happy, The Business Case for happiness. So let's just start with why did you write a book and how was that experience for you? Oh, two, well, two big questions there, Minter, to start with. <laughs> um, I suppose the reason and the why is that, so for those that don't know me, um, I, I founded a business called The Happiness Index. So I see it as my obligation to share that data as much as I can. So what makes people happy, what makes people unhappy. And the result I found of that is that people contact me every single day. My inbox is full of more often than not, not happy stories, horror stories about how people have been treated at work um, or people who want to change their organization. And they believe in happiness and they say things like, I really wish I could change the culture here, but nobody's listening to me. Um, and I, I'm a sort of a bit obsessed with storytelling and that, I think that's one of the things that I get out of our relationships, Minter, because you're such a good storyteller and I, I try and learn from you. And I kind of, I think that the best storytellers sort of, they use three different parts of storytelling. One is one which is appeals to people like me, like the geeks, so the data and the research side. There's people that that just love the like frontline story if they're in business oh if microsoft have done this um, microsoft have done a four-day work week in japan then i want to know about that and then the really good philosophers and storytellers because i don't think philosophers should be dropped out of this i think philosophy is an incredibly important part of business as well um, so i just wanted to put something together to arm arm people for their internal meetings their internal conversations where they could get all the bits of this. So if someone says, oh, but happiness is fluffy or, 
yeah, but we've got a productivity problem at the moment. We don't have a happiness problem or we've got a sales problem. So that you can go through it and go, well, here's some research on it. Here's some stories on it. Um, and then part of the process was to interview the academics so that if you were interested in a, pit, in a bit of someone's research, you could go deeper into them via, via my podcast. Um, so yeah, that, that was the why. I was just trying to arm people that because they're, they're coming to me for help and I can't really help individuals because I work. You can't help with, everybody. No, and I, and I work with, with businesses. That's, we, we are mistaken for a charity quite a lot, the Happiness Index, but I have to pay the bills and so on. So we're a business to business. So I thought if I got this book out there, that could arm, arm, arm people. And there was a second part to your question, which I forgot Yeah, which already. is, how was, how was the writing process? Oh, wow. Well, I don't, I'm definitely not a natural writer. Anyone who's out there who's thinking they're not a writer, um, I would say that that was me as well. Um, <laughs> I like story um, and I enjoy writing, but I never thought that I would write a book. I think if I did it again and I'm, I, I wasn't in the situation to do this, I would have given up the day job to to do this because um, and I know this isn't your question but the hardest thing about writing this book is writing a book about happiness made me unhappy mm. um, and I want to be really honest because what's the point of coming on your show and not being honest and mm-hmm. um, I had to push my limits um, to work weekends and nights um, to get the book done um, and there was quite a quite a telling moment not, not too long ago and I don't know if I've personally shared this with you or not but my son kept coming up to me and I didn't realize that he was doing this when I was writing the book and asking me to play. And I kept saying I was too busy or, or a different version of that. And after I'd finished the book, I asked him if he wanted to play one day and he told me he was too busy. <laughs> and, and, I, and it really hit home for me. I'm, I, I am definitely someone who, who just learns by their mistakes. I'm always, I never see a mistake as a problem. I'm always just trying to learn, learn, learn. And as soon as I get a learning, it's like lodged in my brain. Um, and I... I, I loved going deep into research and I loved that time that we don't know, often make to have. Um, but I would say writing a book and doing your day job is, is you, you, people talk about different types of work-life balance. <laughs> I don't think you can have it all in, in, be, in being an author um, is, is what I would say. So I would probably have made a more of a business case to my uh, co-founders that I'm off for three months. I'm off email. I actually did come out of all internal meetings and everything, but you still got when clients call you, you got to do what you got to do when when you're still yeah. up, still the, the person on that. So it was interesting for me. I just wanted to be totally honest with with your listeners. That's great. I like it, Matt. And it leads me very much to this next question, which is: Are you happy now? And cool. how much, you know, how much of that happiness is related to the struggle challenge unhappiness that you experienced while writing yeah so the name freedom to be happy is half based on research half on my own happiness so one one of my really lucky things that i have is wherever i travel the world i just i wherever i am i record what makes people happy and i'll pop it up on our instagram so i just ask people what makes you happy um, and when people ask me that for me i always say freedom um, and in our data, freedom is important to everyone, okay? But um, if you take HR professionals as, in, as, a, as a group of professions, impact um, is, is the highest up for them. If HR professionals don't feel they have an impact in their role, their happiness subsides quickly. For me personally, is freedom. And, and it's probably why I'm an entrepreneur and why I start businesses, because I, I need that element of freedom. 
Um, so I am, I am happy because I have freedom in all my relationships. Like my wife, I love my wife, obviously, which you would expect me to say. But the reason I love my wife is because she doesn't check up on me every 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a, in, a, um, uh, in, a, in a bar in China with Minta Dial, She's not wondering where I've been, where I've been lost in that two hours. She is is, is Minter a girl or a boy? <laughs> exactly. That's the point, isn't it? It could be anyone, but my wife trusts me and she's not, not, not checking up on me. And, and, and I feel the same with my business partners. Like they trust me to know that, that these are the right things that I should be working on and we check in. And, and that's all my relationships. If, I'm, if you had told me to come on this podcast, I would have said no. <laughs> but you invited me to come onto the podcast. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of, I am very basic on that level, which is I didn't really enjoy school. I always felt like I was restricted and, and, and in jail. And if I have that feeling in any part of my life, my, my happiness subsides quickly. Um, and, and I suppose even a book, you have a deadline, don't you? Mm-hmm. Because I published my deadline before I'd finished my book because I know that's the way I work. <laughs> right. But I mean, you know, in, in a book, there are constraints like grammar and, and chapters and, 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 and costs and all these other constraints, which are not total freedoms. I mean, they are not free. And yeah. so that I, I, but what's interesting about what you said for me, Matt, is that you relate it back to your experience as, as a child or as you were growing up. And so therefore the expression of freedom for you is, is so deeply rooted that it makes total sense. Yeah. As I wanted to dig in on this idea because, as you know, when we first sort of chatted or engaged on the topic of happiness, I, I kind of, let's say, re- rebelled because I, I, in, in the languages that I, I look at and I speak, I, I tend to think of happiness as a rather light word yeah. as opposed to a, a deeper, which is what, of course, at some level this is all about. But I, 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 the specific story was that when I took over uh, the Redken brand back in the year 2000, they would tell me that one of our values is being happy. And I completely scoffed at that. I said, being fulfilled, living a better life, but being happy, happiness can only come if you know unhappiness. In fact, I believe that that sense of fulfillment that I'm talking about can oftentimes happen because you succeeded a challenge. You dug deep. You, you were in pain, but you got through it. And that sense of achievement provides a much stronger base for being fulfilled than, ha, 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 I'm happy. And so that's why I was thinking about how through writing the book, you experienced uh, you know, a travail, a real work and, and struggle and unhappiness. But out of that comes this beautiful book and, and a sense of achievement. So that's what I was sort of digging in on. Yeah, and I, I, it's a really good point, Minta. And I think, I, I think it's, a, it's a perfect opportunity to um, give to some respect to Tony Shea, um, who founded Zappos and Delivering Happiness at this moment. Um, and I think... There's been some really interesting stuff written about Tony, um, even in the last week about this. And, and one of the things that Tony's team want us all to do is celebrate Tony, not us all to be sad. Um, but there's a real problem with happiness where you think of happiness as high happiness or low happiness. I just 
think of happiness as, an ex, as something you experience. So when I talk about happiness, I talk about unhappiness and happiness at the same time. Um, because the only people um, that don't experience happiness um, or unhappiness are dead people or robots. So I think you're right in your point where you're, you're talking about the difference between how you could feel unhappy or happy or whatever. For me, it's about just feeling happiness and unhappiness and all emotions actually. Um, because, and I made this mistake and I think, I think if you look at what we can learn from Zappos is that Zappos was a great culture for some people, but not a great culture for others. Um, and I think you could accidentally create a happiness cult where you have to walk around being happy. Um, but what, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about happiness is a psychological state, which is a basis for, for, for performance. Um, and for me, that's one of the reasons we took out um, happiness targets. So in my first business, HR had a target that we wanted to get happiness at 7.5 over. Um, and lots of businesses do that to this day. And the way that I reframe it in people's minds, um, and so just so you know that our biggest client is Sodexo. So there are 450,000 employees around the world. The founder of Sodexo, who's 90 years old, reads, still reads their board report, and in their board report is our happiness number. Um, so one, it's in there, but what I try and educate people on is one, if Sodexo can do it, you can do it. Um, two, because uh, the, the complexity in the countries and everything they've got, but is when you look at a board report and you see revenue, if revenue goes up or down, generally that's a bad or a good thing. Um, so if revenue is dropping normally, you've got to get people in and wonder what's going on. If it's going up, then it's great. Whereas I see a happiness score in a board report, more like a weather report. So a weather report will say it's going to rain today. Okay, it's going to rain today. Bring an umbrella with you. Or um, it's going to be sunny today. Make sure that you get your sun cream. So the way I see happiness is, is, a, is a guide to your future performance. So rather than it being like, right, it's low happiness, let's fire the HR team. It's low happiness, let's understand why there's low happiness because that's gonna impact our performance. Um, and that's gonna flow through to customers and so on. So connect, uh, using it as a canary in the mine is, is an oversimplification because you can get more of it than that. Um, but I think we're all pre-taught and pre-learned to have that thing to think about high happiness and low happiness. Um, and lots of people come to the subject like I did from that, now I just see it as a, as a data point to understand, to sit with. And so I had to sit with that feeling of, of, of unhappiness when my son spoke to me. And then I've made a change off the back of it, which is I wouldn't, I wouldn't repeat that. Because that saying is a definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. If I wrote another book at the same time as um, doing it as my day job, I would probably reach burnout um, or, or um, even more serious on levels of depression and so on. So I'm trying to listen to my body um, and use use happiness as a data point. Does that make sense, Minta? Yeah, totally. So it's sort of your umbrella is the action, the new action to the point of uh, the daily weather. In your book, you talk about my alma mater, Yale University, uh, and you yeah. mentioned their course uh, that they have on Coursera, one of the most yeah. uh, downloaded or viewed um, courses on the on Coursera, can you learn happiness? 
So if we go into the nature and nurture of happiness, and Sonia Lemersky has done some great work on this, about 50% of our happiness is in our DNA. Um, so if we use um, some fictional characters, let's use Eeyore and Tigger uh, from Winnie the Pooh, Tigger's obviously more happier and up and Eeyore's more down. So I think that there is, we have a happiness set point that is about 50%. It's natural. Some people are happier and, and, and so on. Glass half full, glass half empty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's natural. 10% I think comes down to circumstances. Um, which gets overplayed um, slightly in, in, in some areas, depending on what, what point you're trying to prove. But that's the whether your parents are still alive, not alive, where you grew up, all that kind of stuff. That, um, that, that's about 10% of the impact on your happiness. And then the 40% is the way that you think. So I think one thing I've, I've been on this virtual global book tour, and one of the things I've learned is that how global happiness is, but how people t have told me beautiful stories about people in their career that have given them belief. Like, like serious, serious CEOs and business people that say, someone came up to them when they were in their first job and said, you know, you're, you're good at work, you're good at what you do. And they'd never heard that. They'd never heard that from their parents or anyone in their life. And then they thought, someone was on the, on the Irish call today. I think they were from Diageo and they were just saying, yeah, someone someone just told me I was good, but no one had ever told me I was good. And they just carried on that career and they just flown through. And um, so I think 40% is the way, to answer your question, 40% is the way you think. And I think you can influence that yourself, but you can notice that in other people or have little pet talks or, or someone can point something out and, you, and that can be like a moment where you go, oh, I never, I never looked at it like that before. And, and that's where I think real leadership comes in. And I think... I think a problem with the past is lots, everyone has, lots of people have succeeded in the past, but I always ask the question, have they succeeded in spite of, of that? Could they have done even better? And I think it's in um, Good to Great, the book, isn't it? Which is Jim the Hobbs. biggest, yeah, the biggest like threat to a great company is a good company because you can just be happy with the good bit. Um, and especially now I run a technology company, that, I see that every day where you think, oh, this bit of the product's good but you have to sort of break it down and tear it down to get to great sometimes. Um, so I think, I, I think you can learn happiness. And I, I didn't know how important um, sport was to my own happiness and, until, um, until lockdown. So I do sport every day now. I used to do sport to two, three, two to three days ago. And when I say sport, sometimes it is just a, a quick run. Um, but it is important. It is important to me. Um, well, there, there, what that for me that speaks to is is learning about the mechanisms of happiness and the endorphin kick, the dopamine, and understanding it. I parenthetically also read uh, "Have a Great Day," um, "How to Have a Good," no, "How to Have a Good Day," um, which uh, was written by a woman. I can't remember her name right off the top, but um, she talks a lot about the different mechanisms that can make your day good. And, and, it make, and I wrote a post not so long ago about how giving can make you happier than receiving. Yeah. Uh, of course, that as a kid, you don't think that. You know, you're, you're yeah. only waiting for <laughs> the presence and so on. And then, then you all of a sudden get into another mode. And it turns out that neuroscience can show us that the brain 
reacts very similarly if uh, you're giving or receiving the same item, whether you know, money in the case of the research. So there's an element of if you learn that you can do this and this provides you happiness, then you just have to then be disciplined about doing it and saying, oh, no, I can't do that. Or, no, oh, no, I don't have the time to go for a run. Well, you have to make a choice at some level. Yeah. And, and maybe it's not so much the learning, but the deciding to then execute against what can help you make you happier. Yeah. And I, I think um, I'm going to describe both me and you as ex-marketers for a second, Minter. Sure. <laughs> Um, just, just for the simplification of this, and I do think, I do think advertising and marketing, because um, there is there is one research piece with uh, it's brilliant. He work, he, he's one of my friends as well. He works in branding, and he's called Brandon. Um, but he talks about the shareability of happiness, um, and I don't think a lot of brands have really tapped into that because when when you're we're in a world of marketing and branding where effectively you want people to purchase your product. So much marketing is focused on buying that product for yourself and how that could make you better or it could make you this, that or the other. But very little marketing actually focuses on buying something for someone else. And, and, and as like the research shows, experiences and stuff like that, that, that's on the increase. But there's very little, I, I personally think that brands do tap into happiness, like, or is it Disney, the happiness place in the world and so on and so on. But I don't think that, and I'll give you a, um, a Disney advert that, that, I, that puts me off big time. Um, because when I, was, when I was growing up, I couldn't um, afford to go to Disney. So when I, even now, um, when I see adverts where kids can, where it's like the parents are buying the kids uh, a, a thing to Disney, I just think about all the little kids that are watching that advert that could never do that, but they're still seeing that advert. But I just think there's a massive gap there for, for brands to, to, to get people to give whatever their product or whatever their service is. It makes me think of the, the luxury goods companies who, who are saying, well, that's okay. We're just making it aspirational for the people who can't get it yet. Yeah. And that's yeah. the narrative that they go. So I, I remember the name uh, of the author of the book, Have a Good Day, which is Caroline Webb. The, the, what you're making me think of is another friend of mine in New York called Melanie Notkin. Who, who runs a group of very vibrant community called Savvy Aunties. And it's basically aunties, women that don't have kids. And, and yeah. so she, she does a whole lot of things about teaching brands to address aunts when they're, and helping them when they sell, or when they buy for their lovely nieces and nephews. So yeah. I, that, that just, I thought I'd give a shout yeah. out to Melanie. I'm gonna, Melanie. Check, I'm gonna check that out. Um, as a international person, I want to get to the brand story before we close out, but certainly as an international person traveling so much, I, I love the, the happiness across the globe chapter um, and obviously the Higge uh, in Denmark and so on. Um, I, I, was, I personally, I was surprised that you didn't go into the sort of laughing culture of India. Um, but what was the most surprising, what, is, what would you say of all the countries that you've been exploring and researching in this notions of happiness. And I really feel there is, I mean, as you write, so many very different variations on it. What was the one that really surprised you the most? Oh, um, the two, I mean, the two bits of, there's two bits to, to point on, one from a personal, one from a, just an exciting level. And I just love getting behind the headline. So the Christopher Lowry headline, and even the Daily Mail covered it, which is soil and dirt makes you happy. 
I, mm-hmm. when you read that headline, you have in my mind, I had to just track down Christopher Lowry and meet him and find out like, is this even real? Is this true? Um, and long story short, there is, there's, there is a bacteria in soil um, that triggers serotonin in your brain in a similar way to how Prozac works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm reading this. I'm, I need to get into this and find out more about it. And, and the more you delve into it, the more... I, I love the line where you've got magic and you've got science um, and they are try, They are starting to overlap where you start to think, oh, is that... Is this thing scientifically true? Is it? Is it not? And, and all that kind of stuff. And I think we're starting to uncover how important our connectedness to nature is. And when you start getting into that soil research, and it's very, very topical at the moment, because what Christopher was talking about is that it, we're in a period of coronavirus here where we are not seeing each other as much. But he talks about how when we're with each other, not just this bacteria in soil, but we're actually passing microbes between each other that's actually important for our health. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, from a psychology perspective, we kind of might be able to work out that like, if you don't see other people smiling at you for a long period of time, that might make you sad or whatever. But from a, mic- like a microscopic level, we're starting to uncover that actually we're way more connected than we think. And when you start getting into that research, you're like, wow. And I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a farmer, really. So I started to, I'm, I'm started asking questions like, so what soil makes you happier? That's what I want to know. Is it a sandy soil? Is top it soil, topsoil? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, not, that's not even known yet. That, that, that isn't known. That's where, that's where we are on it. And this is where, and you start to, you start to get into that. So the, the thing that I take from the neuroscience stuff and evolution is that our, our bodies evolved before our brains. Um, and that our bodies are just amazing with their great senses and they are connecting us with other people without us realizing all the time. And obviously there's body language reading and stuff like that, but there's new stuff in microbes and stuff that we don't understand. So that area, check out the podcast and, and, and read on that. It's so exciting. I'll put it probably in the, yeah, thank you, Minta. And I think probably the most controversial one um, that I, that I, thought about a lot was where if you look at any country from an outside perspective and try and be objective there's a lot a lot of bad stuff going on in every country so it's really difficult to write about any country objectively because if you take someone from Denmark and you look at America and you talk about the fact that if you lose your job you lose your health care that's shocking um, but then when you get an American and they get to look at China they'll find some parts of China shocking so that I found it really difficult because in the, our data shows that the happiest employees that we have across over 90 countries are from China. Um, and if you tell most people from the West that, they don't believe it. Um, and my, my children come from Jewish descent, so I'm very sensitive to any kind of anything that looks like genocide type stuff. And then you read in the BBC the reports that there's camps um, of Islamic people being retrained in China. Who knows? Who knows? So I wanted to make sure in the book that I still included my worries and concerns about a country like China, but also I wanted to present data that all, all you read in the Western press is that employees are treated really bad in China. My data um, shows the opposite. So I wanted to give my data perspective as 
as a co-founder of the Happiness Index. The, just so everyone knows, the Happiness Index is not supposed to have an opinion. We're supposed to just be objective. This is the data, make your own mind up. But it's also a book with my name on it. So I didn't feel like I could write that chapter on China without including that. But then where do you start? Because if you go to any country, you can find expenses, scandals, this, that, and the other. So <laughs> that, was, that was one of the challenges for me. That's brilliant. Well, as you write in your book about uh, these three angles, philosopher, storyteller, practitioners with your front of the case studies and the evidence, the data. So maybe that's the, uh, the storytelling coming into that. Uh, when we, you were talking about the, the, the soil, first of all, I was thinking how it, it made me think of Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections. He has these seven different things you need to reconnect in with to, let's say, at least combat the depression mode and one of them is uh with nature and so i yeah. think that there is a sort of uh a sense that things are converging on this it, it did make me think of your other chapter which really got my huge attention which was um quant the quantum way yes. I, I found that uh, most stimulating with your uh, teammate your head of neuroscience clive highland yeah and, and, that's uh, it. The one thing that, uh, that I, I really latched onto was this notion of fields of meaning. Can mm. you describe uh, what, what it means, fields of meaning? So I think, it, it, again, it comes back. Um, I just want to bring t Tony Shea into this again, because there's lots of companies around the world that, um, that implement something called holacracy. So it's a de decentralized self-learning structure. But the problem with holacracy is it's failed in lots of companies. So it's like certain things, you write it down, it sounds brilliant, implement it in the real world and people don't like it. Mm -hmm. So we had to, we had to take what we've, we, we believed in holacracy and update it. So when we're talking about fields of meaning, we, we, are, we are again on that, combining slight bit of philosophy and ma philosophy and magic with quantum mechanics with neuroscience so for us fields of meaning are things that you connect with from an, an energetic perspective and i think people are aware of these things all the time they just don't know how to process that emotion and anyone who's been into an interview and on well let's take let's take relationships you could meet someone and you could write down that they tick every single box for you, but you just don't feel it. And, you, and, and, and this is what for us, what feel, fields of meaning are around how you're bringing in that, that heart element of the business, which you talk about a lot meant to do as, as well, to try and work out how we use these fields of meaning to, to attach people to things like vision and so on. So the very simplified version that we talk about vision is to stop seeing vision as an objective and see it as an energy source like the sun so that it should automatically be pulling you towards it so you don't it's it's the ultimate in the carrot and the stick thing it's like the ultimate carrot that it should be pulling you in towards it and and i would say to anyone on fields of meaning and vision and and this stuff is that if it's not pulling you in just get rid of it it's not a problem um and i think that's where like so many companies like if you if you write down people's visions and values and meanings in in companies it's it can be so boring it's hard to tell which one's which we could probably have a bit of fun on the follow-up show mentor we could just pick random ones and try and guess who's is who's 
mm-hmm. um, because it's that consensus thing is that you get the whole management team together, you come up with some words, and by the end of it, it's like people matter. It's that every, everyone comes up with that, but you've lost the, you've lost the meaning in it. So you've lost the precision, the, 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 the distinction because yeah. everybody, yeah, of course people matter. Fuck. It's sort of obvious. Yeah. And, and I want to make money. Yeah. I want to perform. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and it makes me think that there, there must be in the Chinese data, some kind of field of meaning that we're not picking up because I, I've been, I've spent a lot of time in China and uh, and I've, I see how it works. And I would say the same thing about Japan, where there's, there's a, an, an immense amount of work going on. And, and, and generally speaking, I don't see a lot of smiles, a yeah. lot more frowning and unhappiness. But there must be some kind of field of meaning under there that we need to dig into. Let's unroot yeah. the soil. So I, so, when I, so I interviewed Serene Tan, who was our MD in, in China. Um, and I just asked her about it. And Chinese people um, in the Chinese workforce quite rightly get really offended by this Western view um, of them. And the biggest thing, the biggest surprise that came out from that conversation for me, and it's a very simplified point, but she said, all Chinese people feel like they're on the same team. And I was like, what, what do you mean on the same team? It's like, we just all feel like we're making, we're, we are all building this China together and it's, and it's, we're, we're all in it together. And I was like, wow, that's an unbelievable point that I'd never even considered from the outside. Like, they see themselves as one collective unit that are trying to build something together. And you can look at that as a bad perspective if you want to look at it with your Western eyes on. But the way that it was explained to me, and again, it's on the podcast, I was like, this is amazing that they, that they all, because the thing that, the word that I come back with is optimism. I, like, the, I think I've told you, Minter, but the morning after I met you, um, so the day before I met you um, in China, we had been to a technology unicorn with, with Rush Shaw and... Um, I had told someone in that meeting in my intro about my company and that we were trying to get into China more. And then he introduced himself. Um, one of, one of the women, and I'm, I'm putting the gender on it cause it's important. As we went around the table, everyone introduced what they did at work. And then when it got to the, um, German woman, she introduced herself as a mum first. And then I thought, right, I'm going to introduce myself as a dad first. And then it went to him next and he introduced himself as a dad. And then as soon as the meeting finished, he started um, showing me pictures of his children. And then he said, oh, can we go for breakfast? So we met for breakfast that morning. Um, and he turned up with, I can't remember how many point plan, but a point plan on how the happiness index could crack it in, um, in China. Um, because he believes China should be happier. <laughs> so, mm. Unbelievable. So he's connected China's vision for the whole country <laughs> into my small company's vision. And I was like, I was jet lagged, slightly hungover. I just felt like crying. I felt like mm. I cannot believe this person has gone away and spent his evening putting this bullet point plan together, which I ho- I've written it down on like digital, but I still have to, I hope I haven't chucked the paper away because it was Definitely. a really special moment for me. Absolutely. So I want to finish just on this one area of, of meaningfulness. You have a chapter, which uh, of course uh, is so important to me, which is the link between happiness and purpose. And, and it speaks to me in, about the Chinese story that they feel that their purpose, their mission is above the widget manufacturer that I'm working for. 
Because typically we in the West will say, well, the widget manufacturer needs to have a purpose. And that's what's going to motivate me to work harder at the widget manufacturer, which might be doing widgets that help build tables to have dinners for families. So you could, you know, conceivably have a, a meaningful purpose. Whereas here, it doesn't matter. These widgets, this is about making GDP for China to build a better China, which yeah. is something that mobilizes them and must speak to them. In, in the, the last question I have then, with, with regard to this notion of, of meaningfulness as a subcategory of purpose for me, yeah. when you want that happiness, do you, do you have a, a way for a company to assess the relationship between their purpose and the way that employees are getting it? Is it through the index of happiness or are there other ways to figure out whether there's a cog and a fitting in between employees and the company's sense of purpose? So um, I'm going to use another really bad analogy. So to, to answer your question, yes, we have a we have a product called a cultural assessment, um, which audits. Uh, it's a v- I always say it's like the Google Maps of culture. And my long term vision is that you could walk into any company before you decide whether you want to work there, and you could pull it up like Google Maps and have a look at the culture. That's what that's what I'm trying to visualize in my head to my CTO at the moment. So if anyone listening has got better ideas of doing that, then then tell me because that's what we're right. working on. Um, but what we found in employee engagement, just to take it one step back, the original definition by William Kahn in 1990 included emotions in engagement, which is where um, partly purpose sat in the original definition. After 1990, things like emotions got written out of pretty much all employee engagement programs. And the reason I want to bring it back to this purpose point is that I think engagement in a business, um, if, if I use a car analogy for a second, Engagement um, is, is the sat-nav and the, and the mechanics behind um, the car that gets you where you want to go. But the purpose and, and the meaning and the happiness, which I'm, I'm, putting, I'm grouping into this section under happiness, is, is, the, is the fuel that fuels you to get there. And that's why I think without, it's not an either or question, you need both. Like a company needs a, a strong direction but then if they, the heart isn't connected and the purpose and meaningfulness, you'll never get there. Um, and that's why, I, that's why I think certain people can get to what some people think are unrealistic destinations because they are so purpose-driven to get there. Um, but if you don't have that purpose and that happiness and, and all those ele- elements, that can just feel impossible. And I think that's what great leaders do is that by bringing bringing purpose and happiness and emotions into the story, they make what could be seen as unachievable goals as achievable. Um, so I think that's, that, that's how I see the two in my head. It's, it's almost like a box, which no one listening can see, but um, with uh, an axis with engagement on one side and happiness and, and emotions where I put that purpose bit. Does that answer your question, Minter? Yes, it does. And, and beautifully, I do like that image. I, I, I talk a lot about engagement as part of my five E's. And I, I, I think it's very, it speaks to me, this notion of the sat-nav. Because actually, fundamentally, I, I, I think of the, the biggest lever of discretionary energy is, a, uh, is figuring out who you want to be, have that as a north direction which isn't one precise 
destination, but as a general direction. So the sat nav element speaks to me in there. And then the E of energy, because uh, really it's, we are all energy. When you talk yeah. cosmically, quantumly, or even in the soil or the hard desk that I'm typing on or writing on, that is, that is in constant movement and we are nothing. Yeah. And as soon as we recognize that we are nothing, Matt, you and I as bright and wonderful and all the kind of whatever as you want to give to us, we are nothing. Yeah. And, and when you understand that, then it just, it's easier to sort of get, get with the plot with everybody. Matt, yeah. lovely having you on the show. It's time to roll. What, um, so you, the co-founder of the Happiness Index, author of this marvelous book, how can people track you down, get a hold of you, know more about your work and uh, inject more happiness into their environment? Well, the thing that I, I would love to cover this, um, Minta, so LinkedIn, obviously, Twitter, if um, people want to find us, just grab us on there. But the one thing I wanted the book to be, which is, I think I said on the prequel, is why I deleted half the book is I just want to get people interested in this subject. Um, so I've created a community called the Happiness in Humans community. Um, you can find it on thehappinessindex.com. Um, and I want people that just, if anyone's listened to this and they're interested or disagree with any of this stuff, just join the community and, and get in the conversation. Because one thing that, the only thing, that, the main thing that makes me unhappy is people who throw, um, uh, stones that live in glass houses so it's really easy to criticize anyone's book research data or whatever what, what I always think is if I read something and I don't and I disagree with it I think oh let's let's try and meet that person so we can help like put some more light in it so if you're listening to this and you've got more data or you've got ideas or some philosophy or whatever join the community and let's like let's take on them um, Tony Tony Shea's work and let's all um Let's all take it forward together because this is this isn't just for us. This is for everyone. This is for like the next generation of work. Like let's leave behind a world of work that is better than the one that we found. Well, I feel revved up. I don't know if that's part of the analogy, <laughs> but um, I've enjoyed the chat. Thanks very much, Matt, for coming on the show. Good luck with everything. Keep on the uh, the sales. I hope your book sells rampantly as well as makes uh, makes shapes and waves in in the world thank you minta thanks for having listened to this recording of the minter dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com if you enjoyed the show please head over to itunes to give a rating and review and to finish here's a song i wrote with stephanie singer a convinced man
was of a woman I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate I'm a convinced man, competition's innate A convinced man, in the arms of a woman Despite revenges and struggle to see Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why I'm a convinced man practicing my lines I'm a convinced man hearing these confines a Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you 
and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.